0: You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Let us go then, you and I, where the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient, etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window-panes the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window-panes licked its tongue into the corners of the evening lingered upon the poles that stand in drains let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes, There will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create. And time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you Time for me. And time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. the opening there of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So I'm going to read uh, a couple of poems from a new uh, collection um, and they are somewhat in conversation, um, I say somewhat, somewhat in conversation with the poems and indeed pieces of prose from the Faber catalogue that I'll be reading. I have a great honour to read during the course of the next uh, 70 minutes or so. So this first poem is from a new book, it's called Frolic and Detour, a technical term from a world with which I'm very familiar, the world of tort law, (laughs) insurance law, frolic and detour. Uh, But it does mention um, Michelangelo. So I thought that would be a kind of wonderful segue into this poem. Delighted by the way that we're here not only under the auspices of this great literature festival, but also um, Poetry Ireland. And this is a poem that I wrote for Poetry Ireland. The Ambulance. For the Ambulance Service of Northern Ireland, indeed. Surely, Leonardo drew up plans, not only for the army tank, the parachute and the helicopter, but for the ambulance in which we still hope to capture alive a native of East Harlem or the holy land of East Belfast, carrying him into the realm of beef tea and green jello, from which so few have returned. It was da Vinci, after all, who designed a mechanical lion with a lifelike finish that prowled the streets of Lyon, reaching into the cavity where its heart might well have ticked and proffering gifts of lilies to the citizenry. Lilies and Arrowroot sent this ante room that has come to fetch from a dim studio off the Antrim Road or Amsterdam Avenue another upstart Michelangelo, about to suffer the indignity of having been duly summoned by a note. He can't quite decipher. A note from some long since unmasked spy, some secret admirer, some sergeant at arms, from a world that now makes sense only in our rear view mirror. So, um, next up, a writer um, who meant a huge deal to me. Um, He was a writer, of course, who meant a great deal to Charles Monteith. Charles Monteith, Um, famous not only for taking on so many great poets, but for being the editor who uh, one morning was minding his own business when a dog-eared manuscript arrived on his desk. It had been to 40 publishers. It was covered in I uh, actually probably blood, coffee stains, uh, etc. And it was the manuscript of Lord of the Flies. Towards midnight, the rain ceased. And the clouds drifted away so that the sky was scattered once more with the incredible lamps of stars. Then the breeze died too and there was no noise save the drip and tickle of water that ran out of clefts and spilled down leaf by leaf to the brown earth of the island. The air was cool, moist, and clear. And presently, even the sound of the water was still. The beast lay huddled on the pale beach, and the stain spread inch by inch. The edge of the lagoon became a streak of phosphorescence, which advanced minutely as the great wave of the tide flowed. The clear water mirrored the clear sky and the angular, bright constellations. Along the shoreward edge of the shallows, the advancing clearness was full of strange moonbeam-bodied creatures with fiery eyes. Here and there, a larger pebble flung to its own air and was covered with a coat of pearls. The tide swelled in over the rain-pitted sand and smoothed everything with a layer of silver. Now it touched the first of the stains that seeped from the broken body and the creatures made a moving patch of light as they gathered at the edge. The water rose further and dressed Simon's coarse hair with brightness. The line of his cheek silvered and the turn of his shoulder became sculptured marble. The strange attendant creatures with their fiery eyes and trailing vapours busied themselves round his head. The body lifted a fraction of an inch from the sand and a bubble of air escaped from the mouth with a wet plop. Then it turned gently in the water. Somewhere over the darkened curve of the world, the sun and moon were pulling. And the film of water on the Earth planet was held, bulging slightly on one side While the solid core turned The great wave of the tide Moved further along the island And the water lifted Softly Surrounded by a fringe Of inquisitive bright creatures Itself a silver shape Beneath the steadfast constellations Simon's dead body moved out towards the open sea lord of the flies so this is another poem from the book it's a poem uh, which i wrote uh, in response to an article on the uh, tragedy Um, a tomb which was uh, carried in a special issue of the New York Times and um, I was asked if uh, I might write a poem in response to it and of course I said I would try How how long do I have well you have until 12 tomorrow so, in any case, that, of course, is one of the... Talking about working. Um, so, this is At Tuam. The name Muldoon, despite the fact that it's a uh, comedic Irish name, it's a name associated with stage Irishmen, um, is actually quite uncommon. <coughs> we come from um, along the shores of um, Loch Earn, many of us, but there is a little... Um, pocket of Muldoons, I'm not sure what the technical term is, a little muddle of Muldoons, somewhere in the area there around Tuam. And I had noticed as I read this horrendous story uh, that quite a few of the names were names um, that I recognised. They're not immediate relatives of mine. But they are connected to me. They're connected to all of us. At um, Among the hundreds of children who stare up at us from their septic tank is James Muldoon, who died in 1927 at the age of four months. At least he would never be forced to thank the Lord for mercies, large or small. That cry to high heaven must come from Brendan Muldoon, who died in 1943 at a mere five weeks. A teenage nun bows before an unleavened host held up by a priest like a moon held up by an ash tree. In 1947, the 11-month-old Bridget Muldoon, a namesake of the mother who would shortly give birth to me, has already distinguished herself as being a bit of a bother. While Dermot Muldoon, three months old in 1950, is about to join the ranks of my foster sisters and foster brothers. In that unthinkable world, where a wasp may recognise another wasp's face. And an elephant grieve for an elephant down at the watering place. Emily Dickinson, I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king Be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away what portions of me be assignable. And then it was there interposed a fly with blue, uncertain, stumbling buzz between the light and me, and then the windows failed, and then I could not see to see. This is a a poem from a few days ago, it's called The Fly. Surrounded, as he is, by the blood spatter from the cut and thrust over an idea to which he was but briefly wed, the fly is washing his hands off the matter till the smoke clears. A wildcatter on a rig still lumbering across the North Sea's bed Surrounded as he is by the blood spatter and spout of crude he remembers only a scatter of crudity, heavy hors d'oeuvre, glasses, remembers seeing red. The fly is washing his hands of the matter, now a meal in an upper room has once again served to shatter his illusions overcome by the high hum of the dead, surrounded as he is by the blood spatter from the cruets of oil and vinegar. The fly is tempted to spray attar of roses on the aforesaid fly, washing his hands of the matter. If only because the internet chatter points to a city about to cede to the forces of Ethelred, surrounded as it is. By the blood spatter you shall know them, as you shall know a satyr by its horse's ears and tail. Instead of washing his hands of the matter, the fly might embrace an earth that is irredeemably in tatters a banquet of slivers and shreds, surrounded, as it is, by the intraplanetary blood spatter, might heed the pitter-patter of unborn fly feet on the stair tread, but the fly is washing his hands of the matter. Even as he contemplates a platter complete with its severed head, now, the centerpiece of the spread. Surrounded as he is by the blood spatter, the fly is washing his hands of the matter. Edward Thomas, as the team's head brass flashed out on the turn. The lovers disappeared into the wood. I sat upon the boughs of the fallen elm that strewed the angle of the fallow and watched the plough narrowing a yellow square of charlock. Every time the horses turned, instead of treading me down, the ploughman leaned upon the handles To say or ask a word about the weather, next about the war. Scraping the share, he faced towards the wood and screwed along the furrow till the brass flashed once more. The blizzard felled the elm whose crest I sat in by a woodpecker's round hole. The plowman said... When will they take it away? When the war is over. So the talk began. One minute and an interval of ten. A minute more and the same interval. Have you been out? No. I don't want to, perhaps. If I could only come back again, I should. I I could spare an arm. I wouldn't want to lose a leg. If I should lose my head, why so? I should want nothing more. Have many gone from here? Yes. Many lost? Yes, a good few. Only two teams work on the farm this year. One of my mates is dead. The second day in France they killed him. It was back in March, the very night of the blizzard too. Now if he had stayed here, we should have moved the tree. And I should not have sat here. Everything would have been different. For it would have been another world. I, and a better though if we could see all, all might seem good. Then the lovers came out of the wood again. I watched the clods crumble and topple over after the plowshare and the stumbling team. One Of the great war poems. River Run, past Eve and Adams, from swerve of shore to bend of bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Hoth Castle and environs. Sir Tristram Vailer d'Amores, for over the short sea, had Passancore arrived from North Armorica, on this side the scraggy itzpence of Europe Minor, to wilder fight his penis war. Nor had Topsawyer's rocks by the stream Oconee exaggerated themselves, to Lawrence County's gorgios, while they went doubling their mumper all the time. Nor a voice from the fire bellows mission Misha to tough, tough Thwartpatrick. Not yet, though Vinnie soon after, had a kid's cad butt-ended a bland old Isaac. Not yet, Though all's fair in Vanasea Where socy Sester's Wroth with Toe na' Wrote a peck of past malted jam Where Shen, brewed by arc light, And Rory End to the Brow, Was to be seen ringsome on the aqua face. <laughs> so, in the spirit of that, I'm going to read uh, a new poem. How are we all doing, by the way? Are we all right? position paper, it takes a epigraph from Donald J. Trump. The sentence should have been I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. <laughs> sort of a double negative. So you could put that in and I think that probably clarifies things pretty good. One rotten apple keeps the doctor away. When the doctor's away, the cat will get the cream. The law is an ass that loves to hear itself bray. The path of least resistance leads to Rome. Like father, like two peas in a pod, it's in the country of the blind we find ourselves kissing the old sod. A society is great when men plant trees in which they'll never seek shed. Man does not live by half a loaf while riding roughshod over a house divided against itself. (laughs) A wolf in sheep's clothing separates the goats. A little stroke is a dangerous thing. There's more than one way of skinning the cat that may look like a king. All things come to those who get their paws wet. A miss is as good as an Englishman's smile. He that will have a cake out of wheat must grind exceeding small. In for a penny, in for a pound of cure. A journey of a thousand miles begin when you hit your, begins when you hitch your wagon to a steer. Take care not to count your blessings before they hatch. You can't get a quart of what sauce for the up swan into an apple cart. Ne'er cast a clout before swine. One swallow doesn't wallow in mud a pig in a poke takes flight. Better we catch larks than one man's meat. It's an ill wind that blows nobody a hundredfold. It never rains till oil has been poured over the troubled mill wheels cogs. Those who live by the sword will die by the pen. <laughs> Too many cooks make a dish best served cold. Cut your coat according to the moth. (laughs) In Rome, every cloud is born with a silver spoon in its mouth, and on its tongue, an ox. Step on a crack, my dearies, step on a crack and teach your granny to suck eggs from her one basket. Beware of Greeks bearing a gift horse on which beggars might ride. Little acorns do indeed have the biggest ears. If wishes were fishes, we'd all rot from the head down for an instant stable door. Waste not, nothing gained. The poor workman blames a hip worth of tar. There's many a slip to every coin. The plot is thicker than water of a duck's back. From your lips is enough. All nose to the grindstone makes Jack a dishwater dull knife. Where there's muck, we become a sounding brass. Put your money in the company you keep. It takes all sorts to make a silk purse, but birds of a feather flock in your camp. Don't even think of crossing the bridge till it takes you to the fair. Practice what a goat might preach. Strike while you've got too many irons in the fire. What you sow is a chip of the old block. You can't teach an old dog and not get up with fleas. He who pays... It's pretty deep, this actually, isn't it? (laughs) He who pays... I'm so glad it's been published. You know, there are many companies that wouldn't publish this kind of stuff. It's not only that squeaky wheel but the sunflower seed that gets the grease. The proof of the pudding is out of sight. But even Homer will nod to a blind horse or a one-eyed man. Don't take a frying pan to crack a nut. Burning the candle at both ends justifies the means. When in Rome, spare the rod and spoil the whole barrel. It's all grist to those mills of God. Don't count your chickens till they come home to roost. Loose lips tie knots. Don't put the cart before the storm. Don't wash your dirty linen in a watched pot. The leopard can't change horses in midstream <laughs> <clears throat> 39 today Saunders a 39 today Saunders a bail apart from my old weakness. And intellectually, I have now every reason to suspect at the crest of a wave, or thereabouts. Celebrated the awful occasion, as in recent years, quietly, at the wine house. Not a soul. Sat before the fire with closed eyes, Separation the grain from the husks. Jotted down a few notes on the back of an envelope. Good to be back in my den. In my old rags. Have just eaten, I regret to say, three bananas. And only with difficulty restrained a fourth. Fatal things for a man with my condition. Cut them out I think that's enough. That's crap, our dear friend um, that particular section ends up with the uh, image of his looking up. Uh, the meaning of the word viduity. Um, widowhood, if you recall. The widow bird and the weaver bird. Um, in any case, this next one is, uh, has to do with um, the death of a friend of ours. Um, I can't say it's a happy poem. Maybe we'll find something happier as we go along. With Elmer of Monsbury in memory of Jack Eustace, 1998 to 2014. In Paddington, a man allows his upright base to rest its hand on his shoulder. The awkward embrace of a father and teenage son. I think of one who smoulders in a flame as I take the train to Swindon, from there a cab to the Old Bell Hotel, the oldest in England. Since the unusually large brain of an Apache war chief will swell even more when boiled, An army surgeon saws through Mangus' brain stem, tipping it into a vermil basin for further study. It was from watching Jack Dawes, a veil of the thermals over this scarp, that Elmer got it into his head he might take off from the church tower. This was in 1000 AD or thereabouts. So his flight was a testimony to Elmer's staying power, even though he went no more than 200 yards. He fell, broke both legs, and was lame ever after. My friend's beloved son, also fell hard from a rafter, but stopped short of the floor. An 11th century Benedictine monk was given a daily allowance of a quart of soup in which to dunk bread made from barley and spelt. We don't know if Elmer flew with the aid of feathers or a contraption of linen and silk. The belt worn by a Benedictine was made of leather, but a Franciscan's cincture was rope. The gaudy sleeve I once put on is fraying by the hour. At a distance of 3,000 miles, I grieve with my friends. An E minor on a bass sours even as it soars through the skull of Mangus coloradus. When I look down, I see the pall cast over everything is only partly the shadow of my wing. Lady Lazarus, I've done it again. One year in every 10, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a pepperwet. My face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin of my enemy. Do I terrify? The nose. The eye pits, the full set of teeth, the sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh, the grave cave, it will be at home on me. And I, a smiling woman, I'm only 30. And like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot, the big striptease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was 10. It was an accident. The second time, I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say, I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical come that comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute amused shout—a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there's a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor. so, Herr enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable sure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there is nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Her God, Herr Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. Thank you. So I think just a couple more, if I may, uh, from uh, <clears throat> this is from Louis McNeese, uh, one of the uh, poets who has, has meant so much to um, so many of us who attempt um, to uh, to write poems, uh, to, to keep uh, stirring it up, uh, keep changing the way Golding did right the way through his career. Actually in a strange way he's as much an influence on me and I'm sure others uh, as, as some of the, uh, you know, the self-describing um, uh, um, poets, of all the great poets on that list, the taxis. In the first taxi, he was alone, Trella. No extras on the clock. He tipped ninepence, but the cabby, while he thanked him, looked askance, as though to suggest someone had bummed a ride. In the second taxi, he was alone. Trelaw, but the clock showed sixpence extra. He tipped according, and the cabbie, from out his muffler, said, "Make sure you've left nothing behind, Trelaw, between you." <laughs> In the third taxi, he was alone. Trelaw, but the tip-up seats were done. And there was an extra charge of one and sixpence and an odd scent that reminded him of a trip to Cannes. As for the fourth taxi, he was alone Trelaw when he hailed it. But the cabby looked through him and said, I can't Trelaw well take so many people, not to speak of the dog. And I'm going to end, if I may, um, with a poem. <clears throat> well, I'm trying. I'm trying to decide if I should read Pablo Picasso, "Blood of a uh, Bottle of Bass and Glass" from 1914, or if I should read Georges Breck. Still Life with Bottle of Bass, uh, also from 1914. But I think actually, I'll just read one of them because as it turns out, and you know, no other company but Fabers would publish this, each of these poems, it has a, slightly, has a different title, but it's the, the body of the poem is the same in each case. So you get a couple of chances to read it. I am very happy to be here this evening. Thank you so much for having us here. Thank you so much for your wonderful hospitality. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your great festival. And uh, I'll end with this, if I may. George Breck, Still Life with Bottle of Bass, 1914. Bass, as you remember, is actually, from what I recall, Joyce has the has the, the triangle there. Of the bottle of Bass <clears throat> in the um, in the bar room in uh, Ulysses, right? It was the f- I believe it was the first trademark. Uh, was that red triangle? Um, and uh, in 1914, both Brack and uh, Picasso had to go at the old Bass export. Dante Alighieri drank it straight, no chaser. Even though he talked in circles. He never stood as round. <laughs> Anonymous drank with fowls in the frith. Giovanni Boccaccio drank with Geoffrey Chaucer. Mulled wine. Nutmeg. Lemon rind. William Shakespeare drank with Master Froth. Emily Dickinson drank from her saucer. Bradstreet and Berryman were known to imbibe. Dean Swift drank before delivering a homily, though Daniel Defoe avoided whiskey like the plague. Martinus Scribblers drank with Alexander Pope. John Milton drank with Edna St Vincent Millay. God had a drink or two with William Blake. It was mostly with Wordsworth, Coleridge liked to tope. Christina Rossetti more than once paid homage to Alfred Lord Tennyson's having more than once crossed the bar. WB Yeats drank with some guy called Selwyn Image. Ezra Pound was somewhat into zen. Delmore Schwartz drank with a heavy bear. Louis McNeice drank with the Ulster Scrimmage. Oliver Goldsmith drank with a deserted villager. Mary Shelley drank with Lee Hunt. Robert Frost drank scotch over ice. When T.S. Eliot drank with Valerie Fletcher, she wasn't taking shorthand. Marion Moore drank through a snake-scaled hose. Dylan Thomas drank on his stretcher. <laughs> La Rochefoucauld drank with Madame de Sevigne, which is why he contracted gout. W. H. Alden drank with Harold Norse. Igor Stravinsky drank with Warren Zevon. Having lain so long by the Gateless Gate, Thomas Merton drank with his nurse. Raymond Carver may have drunk to get even with the likes of Gordon Lish. R. L. Stevenson drank with J. M. Barry. Joseph Brodsky preferred potato vodka to wheat. Malaria is not an issue for the G&T lush, while a second lemon rind will stave off beriberi. I myself drank wine, both red and white, though I always drew the line at blush, (laughs) having been brought up in a world where fusel oil was part and parcel of every batch, a world in which push Almost always came to shove. Elizabeth Bishop drank with Alice Smith vessel. Patrick Kavanagh drank with that McDade's hodgepodge. Robert Lowell drank after shave. You could say we all drank from the same vessel. Thank you so much.